This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 26th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. Your co-host today is Bella, my Springer Spaniel companion, and this is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have the latest from Turkey with Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith. Also ahead, the political journalist, author and fellow Spaniel lover, Terry Stiastini will be here to tell us what the Saturday newspapers are covering. And a bit later on today's show, we'll be hearing from Finland's new culture ambassador Paula Paviainen. We do have a wide embassy network. We have embassies in about 80 countries and we want to give them more tools and more information about how to tell about Finnish cultural life. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. Ukrainian authorities on Friday gradually restored power, aided by the reconnection of the country's four nuclear plants. But millions of people are still in the dark after the most devastating Russian airstrikes of the war. Malawi's Anti-Corruption Bureau has arrested and charged the country's vice president, Saulus Klaus Chilima, over graft allegations, it said, following months of investigation over his conduct. At the Football World Cup in Qatar yesterday, there were confrontations between pro-Iran government fans and protesters. Some protesting fans said they had flags taken away from them, whilst others were shouted at and harassed. Protests have been sweeping Iran since the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in September. Germany says it is discussing Poland's request that German Patriot air defence units be sent to Ukraine after NATO's chief suggested the military alliance might not oppose such a move. And some 2,500 people took off their clothes today to pose for US photographic artist Spencer Tunick at Sydney's Bondi Beach in an effort to raise awareness about skin cancer. We begin today's programme in Turkey, which is considering launching yet another ground offensive in Syria. Ankara has blamed Kurdish groups for a recent bomb attack in Istanbul, and President Erdogan says he wants to restore security. Well, I'm joined now by Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith. Hannah, many thanks for coming on the show once again. What's the latest? We understand that there was uh, explosions, uh, rocket attacks on the US military base overnight. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the US already this week has warned that the Turkish offensive, which so far uh, is drone strikes and strikes from fighter jets, uh, is putting its own troops in danger. Obviously, US troops based in that part of Syria um, for a number of years working alongside these Kurdish forces to defeat ISIS. And although the caliphate uh, was territorially defeated back in 2019, there are still obviously ISIS cells operating. Uh, There are a huge number of uh, ISIS fighters and ISIS women as well, many of them foreigners uh, in camps and in prisons across north uh, western Syria. So really this is a very, very sensitive area um, and you know, the, the US initially put out quite a weak statement when Erdogan first started this offensive against Kurdish forces in Syria just saying, you know, we condemn any loss of life, we, we want de-escalation and now these signals are getting stronger as, as their own uh, interests are being threatened. 
Mm. So, I mean, we're seeing a stepping up of attacks. What happens next? Because the Kurds, I understand, are, are saying that they will walk away from those camps. Those leaves That leaves those ISIS prisoners unguarded. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the kind of, uh, this is the leverage that the Kurds have, you know, for a number of years, really, they've been sort of playing the role of, you know, jailkeeper to all these ISIS fighters, accused ISIS fighters from all over the world, including Britain. And, you know, repeatedly they've said, you know, if they're not backed up when they come under these kind of attacks from the Turks, then they are just going to walk away. And obviously that's a very, very serious threat. Um, now, Erdogan, for his part, he's been making increasingly kind of threatening rhetoric across this week, saying things like this is not going to be limited to an air war. So he's basically threatening a fourth uh, ground offensive in Syria, um, you know, saying that this operation will continue until Turkey's security interests are met. Now, uh, there are obviously backroom talks going on, both, I think, between uh, Turkey and the US and also between Turkey and Russia. These are the two other big powers in this part of Syria. Now, the thing that's working in Erdogan's favour is that both Russia and the US are kind of hamstrung in the way that they can uh, deal with or hit back against Erdogan at this point. On the US's, uh, from the US's point of view, obviously they need Turkey to to approve the membership of Sweden and Finland to join NATO. That's something that Erdogan's been holding out on for months. You know, they're hoping that at some point, you know, maybe in the new year, he's going to finally agree to that. And then from Russia's point of view, the Ukraine war means that they've become far more overstretched militarily than they were back in 2019, the last time that uh, the Erdogan launched a ground offensive in this part of Syria. And back then it was Russia who kind of brought uh, Erdogan to the negotiating table, managed to sort out a deal to stop that fighting. They're in a very, very different position this time. Mm. So how likely do you think a ground offensive is? It would certainly serve... Erdogan's interests. You know, in the past, it's been shown that these kind of ground operations, uh, particularly against the, the PKK, which is a group that has a really you know, long history here in Turkey. For 40 years, it's been fighting this separatist war in eastern Turkey. Of, you know, often spills over into the cities of the West, like Istanbul and Ankara, through bombings uh, and attacks. Um, and you know, it's always proved really, really popular across a cross section of Turkish society, not just his political supporters, um, to launch these kind of uh, grand operations. On the other hand, you know, Turkey is also in you know, kind of a precarious position. The U.S. so far, um, you know, it's talked about secondary sanctions on Turkey um, due to Turkey's you know, continuing dealing with Russia, um, you know, allowing Russian oligarchs to come here and open up businesses, you know, possibly acting as a kind of energy hub to allow Russia to keep selling its gas. And you know, those are just threats at the moment, but they would be pretty serious for the Turkish economy if they were to come to the fore. And what are the people in Turkey saying about it? Would they support a ground offensive? Well, here's the thing. I mean, generally, as I said, you know, these kind of operations in the past have been very popular. I think there have been kind of diminishing returns. You know, people are really, really tired of this constant sense of a security threat in Turkey, you know, constant sense that you know, we're, we're fighting some group or other. And also there's a you know really deep economic crisis here as well. But here's the thing. Just last month, a new law was brought in here in Turkey. It's a media disinformation law. It means that anybody who is uh, you posting anything which is considered provocation by uh, the courts and by uh, the, the broadcasting regulators, which are government controlled, can receive up to three years in prison. Now, this has really, really chilled debate about anything here in Turkey. And it was really telling, you know, 
within hours of this military operation being launched, already you know, police were announcing that they'd uh, identified provocations on on social media. So really, that's chilling debate, both you know in the media, on social media, and just in kind of general conversation. Hannah, thank you very much indeed. That was our Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda Smith. And in a moment, we'll take a closer look at the day's papers. Let's uh, have a look at those papers. Joining me in the studio is Terry Stiastini. She's a political journalist and author and, as I said earlier, a spaniel lover. And right now she's loving my spaniel. Yes, I'm stroking the dog here. So. <laughs> he's very good. But very you, well your dog's called Otto. Mine is called Otto. He's a cockapoo. And he would probably, if there were another dog in the studio, be making a lot more noise. <laughs> <laughs> but he's very sweet. I've met him at, yeah. um, I met him at Hay Festival, in fact. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's a very literary dog. <laughs> Well, in fact, speaking of hay, the winter weekend is on at the moment. I believe all the lights were turned on by the children's author, uh, Michael Monpergo, uh, yesterday. uh, And the town is once again alive with the kind of spirit of Christmas and, of course, of literature. Um, Terry, let's have a look at the papers. And we are going to start with, in fact, uh, somebody that I know from hay. His name is Horatio Clare. Clare. He's a wonderful, wonderful writer um, and uh, just has written beautifully about all sorts of things, including sort of depression and uh, and so on. He's just been in Calais looking at what the pull of Britain is, and he's written a big front-page piece for the FT on this. Yes, this is, a, as you say, it's, it's really a lovely article, um, very very well written um, and really really worth reading, and it features a lovely uh, picture um, of some refugees at young Afghans playing cricket uh, in a camp in Dunkirk, and he's you know he's been to Calais, and he's obviously been uh, several times before. Uh, and on this occasion, he's he's talking about how how the atmosphere there has changed and what it is that drives people uh, to come to Britain. And you know, obviously, it's been such a big uh, political issue, not only in the UK but also in France, in Italy. People have been talking about migration, but it's just really interesting to hear. Uh, from from the people themselves who actually want to come rather than sort of the politicians trying to you know argue about what to do with people and what to do with people crossing over particularly in small boats and so Horatio Clare has spoken to some of the people in this uh, camp which they call Old Lidl apparently because there used to be a supermarket there and now there no longer is a supermarket um, and they say that uh, in particular the, the people are largely Sudanese, overwhelmingly Sudanese um, and also Eritrean and just talking as well people who are Afghans, Iraqis, Iranians in in all sorts of different areas uh, around Calais Uh, and you know just the cost, the amount of money that people are having to pay to go on these extremely dangerous small boats. They say full fare is 2,000 euros plus. Those paying full fare uh, get a place on the boat. Poorer people pay less to go standby. If there's only no space, you wait because you can only pay 800 to 1,000 euros. So you go to the beach many times and there is no space, so you wait. Um, so, you know, the amount of money that, that people are charging to do this and, and the danger, obviously, they're putting themselves in. But it's interesting. So uh, there's an English graduate from Sudan who we've spoken to. Many of these people, for obvious reasons, don't want to give their names. And they said, the English understand us. They have understanding of our history and our situation. They know about Darfur and Blue Nile province and Horatio Clare says I failed to contradict him instead he asked about have you heard of the economic crisis in Britain of course the rich rich nations are poorer and the poor ones are really poor he says Um, but they are not put off by the Rwanda scheme 
And other people, the other reasons they give here, for instance, a 26-year-old taxi driver and rapper from Sudan uh, talks about Khartoum and the sort of the police dangers. He says he has a brother in the UK. It's not like France and Italy where he says Africans like us cannot have good lives and people move away from you on the bus. And, and the other things that people like are things like uh, Midsummer Murders, which is known as Inspector Barnaby in the rest of Europe. So they have an idea that, you know, coming to England, it'll be a, you know, living in a, in a sort of Midsummer Murders type, type village. Uh, and then also an Af- the 17-year-old Afghan boy who says, uh, why does he want to come? He says, cricket, cricket for England. He's a right-arm fast bowler and an all-rounder, uh, judging by his controlled and fierce cover drives. Uh, and, you know, so people got, you know, well-qualified and mm. interesting people who just want to come to the to the UK. And and that, that sort of cricket angle is really interesting. Going back to what I was saying earlier about Michael Morpurgo and Hay, Morpurgo wrote this wonderful book called Boy Giant, which son of Gulliver, and that is about a sort of an, an Afghan boy coming to to Britain to play cricket. And in fact, Morpurgo has set up a sort of refugee cricket team um, and, and it's, it's just a, a wonderful thing that really helps uh, kids coming to this country. Um, let's talk about Swedish spies. Yes, Swedish spies or possibly Russian spies. This is, a, this is a fascinating story. Again, you know, every so often there's a story that you think is actually sort of the description of a, of a plot of a forthcoming you know, Netflix series or something. And this one, this one really sounds like it. Uh, so this is the story uh, in The Times this morning of Sergei Skvortsov and Elena Kulkova, uh, who, you know, there's a picture of them from their, uh, from their social media from a few years ago, sort of dancing at uh, what looks like quite a nice sort of occasion here. Uh, they, uh, they are 59 and 58 years old. They're from Moscow originally. They settled in Saltsjöbu. I think that's I don't know how that's pronounced. An affluent area on the island of Varmdo in the Stockholm archipelago in 2015. Um, however, they seemed very nice, as their neighbours always say when something like this happens. <laughs> they seemed like everyone else in the area. They chatted about gardening and always greeted us in a friendly manner. However, <laughs> the neighbours must were a bit surprised. Um, at 6 a.m. on Tuesday, two Black Hawk helicopters swooped and elite police abseiled down and entered the villa through the windows. The operation had been designed to last only a minute, police said. Officers acted fast to stop the couple having time to flush anything in the toilet or destroy computers. Uh, so the t- these two people were arrested. Uh, there are claims that they had been spying for Russia, claims which uh, they deny. They um, th- He is in custody, accused of carrying out illegal espionage, and she has been released on bail. Uh, they are, have both um, denied the charges against them. But, um, yeah, they're saying this is, you know, cause big concerns within Sweden because they are worried about, you know, whether Russia has been sort of infiltrating people and whether these people used a technology company to spy on on sensitive targets. But yeah, a very a very dramatic uh, alleged spy story in Sweden. Absolutely. Wonderful story in terms of, you know, if, if you're fans of Le Carre and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, let us look at politics, British politics, but actually with a, a wider lens, because this is about why people want to go into politics, what kind of people it attracts and what kind of hold it has on them. So we've seen uh, some resignation nations. Well, more people people standing down. So uh, in British politics, obviously, conservative candidates are considering their futures uh, ahead of the next election. And it's sort of time a time when uh, MP current MPs have to say whether they are going to stand again. And perhaps not surprisingly, there are quite a few conservative MPs who already said they're going to stand down. They're not going to do all of this again. The less surprising thing is older MPs who have, have been around, you know, for decades. What 
is more surprising is people like uh, Deanna Davidson, who is uh, only 29. She won a Conservative, she won a seat in Bishop Auckland in the northeast of England, which had never previously been Conservative, had always uh, been Labour for as long as anybody could remember. Um, And she has said at the age of 29, and having been an MP for only three years, uh, and already a a junior minister, that she doesn't want to stand again. She says, for my whole adult life, I've dedicated the vast majority of my time to politics and help make people's lives better. But to be frank, it has meant I haven't had anything like a normal life for a 20-something. So she has already decided, she hasn't said what she's planning to do next, and she's going to carry on as an MP until whenever the next election is. Um, But it's just really interesting that, you know, you you may say she's probably quite likely uh, to lose that seat at the next election, so she may be jumping before she is pushed by the electorate. Um, But it's just, yeah, it's interesting that people feel that you can't be a politician and have kind of a normal life. And I think probably particularly for, for young women MPs, that is, you know, a particular concern. And I also think, I mean, it's interesting to look at the type of people that go into politics. You've got to be a particular kind of person and pretty thick skinned, I would think. Yes, I think you do. I mean, you know, talk about sort of we've been talking about so the Conservative MP Matt Hancock, who's gone on I'm a celebrity in, in the sort of the, in the jungle of reality. This kind of sort of, sort of impenetrable self-confidence, which I think a lot more politicians have in public than they do in private. I mean, I think particularly when things aren't going well for MPs parties and sometimes you just sit there and you get this kind of sense of impending defeat from them and that's when you see the sort of vulnerability and I just remember talking to people of you know all sides of politics just going I'm not sure why I'm doing this I'm not sure why I'm doing this anymore and then when, when once they start to think that once that sort of thick skin has gone slightly then then they suddenly think you know why do I put myself through all of the you know the online stuff the you know the long hours the you know the the criticism uh, and a lot of people just look back and think no you know I'm not sure it's worth it but I mean if you look at the history the background of a lot of MPs so for instance I, I don't know uh, Tony Blair who you know was in a, a rock group wanted to be a performer d- did end up performing in a way uh, there's also Louise Mensch what was her maiden name she was a, a Bagshaw yeah, she, she was a, a novelist before she went into politics yeah, yeah. and again absolutely grabbed the Limelight, limelight whilst she was, was in power and then sort of wandered off to do something else when that wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And I and I, I think, I mean, do we get the politicians we deserve? Or we... I don't know. I think we hear about the people uh, that want to be, you know, stars that sort of put themselves out there that are, you know, there's always a thing when new MPs come in, you kind of look through the list and go, oh, they sound interesting. They've got, this person's got an interesting backstory or whatever. What you don't tend to focus on, particularly as a journalist, is the people who, you know, have, have got a really solid background and they're going to be the people working hard on committees and going line by line through, uh, you know, through bills that are coming before Parliament or, or working really hard in their constituencies. You know, there's there's plenty of those, but they're not necessarily the people that, that get the spotlight. Yeah, well, let's turn to American politics because, of course, the rapper Kanye West has announced that he's going to run in 2024. <laughs> Uh, yes, well, I mean, this has come up, you know, not only because of Kanye West, who I believe in, you know, now known as Ye, I think, Ye, is Ye. that how you pronounced it? Ye, Ye. Ye. <laughs> uh, has uh, had also had dinner with another, uh, you know, want someone else who wants to be a candidate again. Uh, and Donald who also Trump. just wants yes. to be famous. Well, yeah. yes, he, famous. you know, <laughs> um, and but this there is a sort of a serious uh, element to this, which is that uh, with Kanye West, who, you know, is quite possibly not entirely well, uh, you know, Donald Trump dined and convinced with both with with Kanye West and with uh, in what the Guardian describes as infamous white nationalist Nick Fuentes, um, they dined together at the pres- former president's Mar-a-Lago club in uh, Palm Beach, and 
according to the Guardian here, you know, this Fuentes has espoused vehemently anti-Semitic, racist, and misogynist views. Um, so yeah, these are this is not people that you would necessarily want to be want to be dining with, and this is kind of quite quite worrying that these people are are getting together. They're not, not necessarily agreeing on everything, um, but. Yeah, it's you know the kind of people that you you dine with says might say a lot about who you are. But in fact, I mean, Kanye said that Trump was very very impressed by Nick Fuentes, uh, which I, which is ex- well, well. I think Kanye West also su- suggested that Donald Trump could be his running mate. Um, <laughs> so you think you know this is um, and, and then he says that Trump screamed at him and said that he would absolutely lose. Uh, he said Trump started basically screaming at me at the table, telling me I'm going to lose. Has that ever worked for anyone in history? I, ju- I just don't. Think it's going to work for for yay yeah i think we're going to probably hear a, a lot more about uh about what might have gone on uh, at this meal and i think it's it's not going to be good for for anybody involved well we're all wondering whether donald trump will be consigned to the history books will he just be a bare carcass bones the heap of history uh and uh, oh speaking of bones <laughs> let's have a look at dinosaurs yes yeah, so let's look at the front page of the new york times uh, which is, I think, it's kind of the post-Thanksgiving New York Times, and they're finding some interesting uh, weekend stories here. But apparently, okay, so the bone business is booming. So is the headline here, and there is a problem because uh, people have got—they seem to have so many dinosaur skeletons uh, that they are now selling for huge amounts of money. Uh, and it slightly reminds me of that kind of old, uh, was it Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn film, where uh, where they've got a big dinosaur skeleton and they're uh, running around with it. Uh, and, yeah, the, so Mr Peter Larson, uh, finding um, dinosaur skeletons in, in Wyoming, he's been digging there for more than 20 years. Uh, his fir- The first Tyrannosaurus rex fossil that he helped escalate uh, excavate sold at auction for 8.4 million pounds in 1997 but this business is now booming so much that uh, another T-Rex sold it in 2020 for 31.8 million dollars and now another one uh, another T-Rex skull is expected to fetch between 15 million and 20 million buyers include financiers hollywood stars tech industry leaders and a crop of new or developing natural history museum facilities in china and the middle east but they're having to pull uh, another blockbuster dinosaur auction um, a T-Rex, I like that they all have names all these skeletons have names, so a T-Rex skeleton named Shen was expected to fetch between 15 million and 25 million dollars, but the sale in Hong Kong was called off after others raised questions about uh, the specimen, and they were wondering whether this is um, whether this is whether this is genuine or not, so yeah, but um, scientists are, are worried because they're not getting them for the museum, because if you can't uh, bid for, you know, bid for your dinosaur and pay enough for it and these might all end up in in private collections for people who've got you know very big living rooms i'm not sure where you put your dinosaur well what's extraordinary too is if you just do a quick search of headlines about dinosaurs from the last 24 hours there Mm. are so many so for instance an international team of researchers has identified a new species of dinosaur previously unknown they found it in western romania uh and it uh is its name which i'm not going to attempt to pronounce because i'll get it wrong but it literally means flat headed reptile from Transylvania. It was roughly two metres long. It walked on two legs uh, and um, it only had a a small body size. And apparently this comes from a a group of dinosaurs called dwarf dinosaurs. Um, One of those would fit in your living room a bit better. You wouldn't have to have a room the size of the Natural History Museum to to keep it. Absolutely. And the New York Post 
Christ, um, which, you know, I'm obviously not going to uh, admit to reading, um, <laughs> is talking about um, a, 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 a real-life dinosaur-themed property dubbed Jurassic Retreat. It's on the market for $1.3 million. It will take you back 65 million years. Uh, it's, uh, it's located near Portland in Oregon on two acres of land, and it comes with dinosaurs galore. Apparently, you walk there amongst the, the dinosaurs. So, uh, wow. very exciting stuff. Uh, Terry, thank you very much indeed for coming in. Uh, and thank you for being nice to my dog. Is she sitting quietly under She's your feet? She's sitting very nicely and quietly just next to my chair here. <laughs> uh, that was the political journalist and author Terry Stiastny. And you're listening to Monocle on Saturday. Keen for some well-informed company to take you from your suite to your sun lounger this summer? Well, the Monocle Companion is out now. Packed with 50 inspiring essays to improve everything from your vacation to your vocation, our first ever paperback is packed with long reads, inspiration and cheery ideas to make you happy. Head to monocle.com for more. Last month, Finland's Ministry for Foreign Affairs devised a new role to promote Finnish culture around the world. The first ever position of Ambassador for Culture and Creative Industries was awarded to Paula Parviainen, who's former ambassador to Singapore. She's been telling Monocle's Tom Webb why the position was created and her ambitions for the new role. In Finland, we have a great cultural offering. We just feel and and we hear from the uh, country branding surveys and so that it's not well known. It's not known to its potential around the world. And we do have a wide embassy network. We have embassies in about 80 countries and we want to give them more tools and more information about how to sell about Finnish cultural life. So this is basically why the new role was created in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, in the Public Diplomacy Unit. So this job for Finland was not previously covered? Not in this format. We've been doing culture maybe until 10 years ago. It was done by our embassies and then it's been on a lower sort of a priority list. But we feel that creative industries, it's a growing service and it's got a global need and it's got global potential. And we really want to give what Finland has to offer. We want to find new channels for the Finnish offering around the world. So what does this role and what does this work mean in practice in terms of how different is it from being an ambassador? You were Finland's ambassador to Singapore, for example. Yes. Well, we have this in our home base in the Ministry for Foreign Affairs in Helsinki. We have these thematic ambassadors. We have an ambassador for education. We have an ambassador for cyber questions, for energy, for climate change. So this is one of the thematic ambassador roles. That's ambassadors coming from their postings from around bilateral or multilateral missions. So they take these like thematic postings for the while they are in Finland. So this is uh, this was a new theme and it is created because we feel that there is more potential for this sector than what is currently the exposure of Finnish culture in the world. So what would you say are the main challenges that you are facing in this new position? Well, the main challenge is that there's too little information, there's too little knowledge of what Finland can offer. So, of course, we have like great conductors that are 
known here in Britain very well. In the US, we have uh, classical music, we have new composers, uh, we have opera, we have modern dance, we have brilliant design, architecture. So the challenge is to sort of find the new audiences for all these names and all these offerings that we have. So th- there's a lot there. You you mention opera, architecture, dance. I mean, which aspects or, or which components of Finnish culture and creative industries do you think will benefit the most, deserve the most international attention? Well, I want to serve them all. You know, like whatever cultural forms there are that are ready for internationalization, for international context and for going to the world. So I don't want to do a limitation for serving this or that. What is in a great boom now is the audiovisual, the filmmaking and modern dance and also visual arts and architecture. So basically there is nothing nothing to limit the sectors. But the, the sort of the film industry and gaming industry, gaming is really strong part of this. You know, Rovio and Supercell, all these companies that have been on the market for a long time, they are born international. And so so we want to benefit from what they have created, but also like support others to follow their suit. And have you thought about or have you got a strategy for bringing attention to the film and, and gaming industry yet? Yes, well, gaming industry is already very international. So they have good connections in the US, in the UK, in the big markets. And the film industry is looking very much to find new collaborations here in the UK, but also the US market is strong for that. And we already have quite a good exposure. There is the Nordic Oscar week that brings in a lot of filmmakers from Finland. And the Nordic collaboration in this sector is big in the US. There also was uh, quite a lot of film collaboration in China, but that market is uh, is now changing a little bit. So basically, Finland is always looking at the whole of the world. Yes. Yeah, so creativity is something that, that I feel is ingrained in, in Finnish children from birth. The country, globally speaking, has a very late starting age for schooling. Do you believe this could be a reason, this kind of long period of creative play and early development, partly a reason why Finland is such a big player in the creative industry? Yes, you hit a very good point, because in Finland, you know, education is something that we are known as superpower of. And uh, we believe in the child's creative sort of development that comes from, if it's nurtured, it, it is there with the child when they are born. It's a, something that you can teach. I've been serving in several postings in Asia, and Asia is always looking very much to the Finnish education system. And uh, they ask us to come and tell them how to teach creativity to their children. And uh, it's just that you have to let the child play. And and you have to give the sort of the safe surroundings for them to develop their own path, to find their own strengths. And we support this very much with our education system in the early childhood education system and in the music education, which is world class in Finland. And every child has a possibility to even to take like a hobby after the school that is sort of supported for those who cannot pay for it. So be it in the arts or creativity or in the sports. So this is something that we want to nurture and we want to make an equal opportunity for all. And I think this is something that then brings the element of creativity to whole of your life. That was Ambassador Paula Paviainen in conversation with Monocle 24's Tom Webb. 
And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to our studio engineer, Sarah Nicholl. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend, but don't forget to tune in to tomorrow's edition of Monocle on Sunday, which airs at 9am London time. Our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, will be your host for that. I'm Georgina Godwin. From me and from Bella, thank you for listening. writers to join me, Georgina Godwin, as I talk to Catherine Rundell, winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize for non-fiction for her book Super Infinite, The Transformations of John Donne, the great English love poet. As Rundell writes of Donne, from failure and penury to recognition within his lifetime as one of the finest minds of his age, one whose work, if allowed under your skin, can offer joy so violent it kicks the metal out of your knees and sorrow large enough to eat you. Well, the same could be said of this book. That's the Bailey Gifford non-fiction winner 2022, Catherine Rundle, on Meet the Writers, available as a podcast now. Listener.